everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I am your host, VP Morris. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to everyone so far who has voted for the Audioverse Awards. The show has been nominated in Category 19, Writing of a New Audio Play. You can vote for the show too by clicking in the link below that says Audioverse Awards. Be aware that you will have to vote in all 32 categories, which can take a little bit of time. Voting is open until October 31st, 2019. I'll let you know of the results on social media. You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Dead Letters Pod. You can also follow the show on the Podbean app or website, which is the hosting site for the show. Other ways you can support the Dead Letters podcast and make sure it keeps going is by donating via PayPal, giving it a five-star review on Stitcher and iTunes, and of course, sharing it with others who you think would enjoy the show. Now for the recap. Last episode, we learned how Heather got her scars and what is at stake for her for not listening to the Dead Letters. The first time she ignored Charlotte, her brother died. Now, if she fails to give Fiona her third letter at the right time, her children will die. Angry with his mother for uprooting their lives to follow the writings of a dead woman, her son Jonathan attempts to destroy all traces of the letters before Fiona can get hers. Now, let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast, Episode 10, The Third Letter. Jonathan, no, Heather called out. You're going to die if you destroy those things. He let out a laugh and dropped the burning paper towards the trash can. Marco leapt forward and pushed Jonathan back, causing the paper to miss the can and land on the carpet. I scooped up what I could, holding it to my chest. Fire burst forth on the carpet, and flames spread over the floor, crawling up Jonathan's pant leg. Marco took off his winter coat and threw it on the ground. It smothered most of it. I stomped out the few remaining flames until they burned out, leaving small trails of smoke in the air. At the same time, Heather and Jonathan beat the fire on his leg until it was out. By the time it was extinguished, half of his pant leg had been burned away, and the flesh underneath was raw with red and pink burns. Jesus Christ, Jonathan, I can't lose you too. This is why you don't disobey me. I will tell you everything I know, I promise, Heather said, gathering up the photo album and the remaining papers from her desk and shoving them in the bin I was still holding. But first, Fiona and her friend need to leave, and I need to take you to the hospital, Heather glared up at us. Marco picked up his singed coat as we walked out of her office. I turned back to Heather. Goodbye, Fiona, she said. Read your last letter and take care of yourself. Outside of her house, I reorganized the contents of the bin so nothing would get blown away as we walked to the bus station. I held it tightly to my chest as we rode on for the next 90 minutes back home. When we returned, I rummaged through all of the contents of the bin until I found my third dead letter. This is it, I said to Marco. I slipped the fragile piece of paper out of the yellowing envelope and read what Charlotte wrote to me. July 28th, 1875. My dearest Fiona, if you are reading this, then you must have survived the terrible incident that I warned you against in my previous letter. You must have met Heather and her children, including her daughter that she named after me, an honor I don't feel I deserve, and her son that she named after her now-deceased brother. Well, while Heather was such a hot-headed, troublesome girl, I am pleased to know now that she had survived into adulthood and has some semblance of happiness for herself. As for you, this is the last of these letters I will ever write. The situation here is changing. More and more patients are being admitted. I once had this room to myself, but now I must share it with three other women. The new doctors that have been hired are much less accommodating. They've instructed the nurses to forbid me from writing these fanciful letters because they are feeding my delusions. 
No one here believes me that I can see into the future. Well, none except Nurse Mary. She is my only ally in this rotting place, and bless her soul because she has agreed to send this one last letter for me. I wish I could tell you more, Fiona. I feel we have such a deep connection, even though we've never met in the flesh. However, I can't waste time, and I hope that one day I might get to see you and speak with you. These are my last instructions for you. Your willful blindness still lingers with you. Your eyes have been opened to the consequences of such blindness by the death of your friend. However, there are still many wolves hiding in sheep's clothing in your life. The betrayal of the man who you wished to marry came to you as a shock, but he is only a hound dog on the hunt for a much eviler fox. What that young man warned about your family is true. There is great wickedness lurking there, and you must root it out. Thus, my first rule for you is to be truthful with your parents. Do not lie to them. This will force the truth on their side to come out, no matter how painful it is. The second instruction I have for you is to go to the cabin if you see the man with the black suit and a red tie. If you don't know what I'm referring to, ask your mother about Aunt Ruth's cabin. She can instruct you on how to get there. Stay in the cabin until you know that you are no longer in danger. Do not bring anyone with you, as you must survive this final ordeal on your own. My third and final instruction for you, if you see ice and it looks thick enough for you to cross, walk across it. On the other side, you will find everything you need to know. With love, Charlotte Bouvier. What are you going to do now? asked Marco. Are you going to tell your parents about Paul? I think I have to, I told him, pulling out my phone. But first, I'm going to text my mom. I want that address for the cabin, just in case. Hey mom, random question, I typed. Do we have an Aunt Ruth in our family and does she have a cabin? Within seconds, she responded. Yes, that's weird. I was just thinking about her. Ruth was your grandmother's sister, but she passed away years ago. A few cousins still share the cabin she left to her nieces and nephews, but I haven't been up there since I was a teenager. Where is it? I replied. She sends two pictures. One of them is a front and back of a postcard. The front side showed a long, glassy lake that was surrounded by lush forest, with a few rocky islands dotting the blue surface. In thick font, the words Sterling City, New York curved slightly towards the top of the picture. Sterling City, I said to Marco. That's where Charlotte lived. I zoomed in on the card's backside. I could barely read the writing, other than to make out it was a postcard my mother's brother had sent her over the summer. At the top, he had written the return address. 54. Emerald Drive. After researching where the cabin was on Google and writing down instructions to the place in a notepad for safekeeping, I decided to call my parents and tell them the truth. I called the house phone, but was met with the busy signal. It's no surprise. With such a large family, my mom was always making calls to some cousin or another. I dialed her cell phone, but of course she didn't pick up. Too busy gabbing away on the home phone. Finally, I decided to call my dad's cell phone. He never liked it when I called him, but I figured he might be able to pull my mother off the phone long enough for me to tell them the news. The phone rang twice before I heard my dad's curt voice say, Yeah. Hey dad, it's me, I said to him. There were whooshing sounds and muffled voices in the background. What is it? He asked, his voice sounding distant as if he was on speakerphone. Are you with mom right now? I asked. No, I'm driving, he said. Oh. I replied. 
Is there something wrong? Are you safe? I wanted to hang up and wait for them to be together in the same room, but I remembered Charlotte's warning about telling the truth to my parents. So I decided to tell him first. Dad, Paul broke up with me, I said. What? That bastard. What kind of coward proposes to a girl right after she's released from a hospital and then leaves her? If you want, I'll get your brothers and we'll go teach that punk a lesson. I could feel the hatred in his voice. No, Dad, but there's... I tried to explain, but he wouldn't let me finish. Are you alone there right now? I don't like that. Not after what happened, he said. I'm not alone. Marco's staying with me, I said. Who's that? I was about to say, just a friend, as it would be the easiest way to calm him down, but I stopped myself and told the truth. He's a guy from school. I've been having feelings for him, and I don't know where things are going, because there's a lot going on right now, but I trust him, and he takes good care of me. Marco sat in front of me, hearing all this. His cheeks slightly flushed, and he couldn't look me in the eye. Well, I guess you got over Paul real fast. My dad chuckled. Listen, no funny business. Dad, there's something else I have to tell you. It's important. Oh god, you're pregnant, aren't you? No, it's Paul. We broke up because I found out he's an undercover cop. He was pretending to be my boyfriend because he wanted information on the family. He said, you've been lying to me about what you do for a living, and that you're a really bad person, and that you do really bad things. He said if I told anyone, I might die, or end up in jail or something. I paused for a moment, hearing no reaction. Dad, is it true? I begged, hoping he would refute everything. The voices of several men rose up in the background. Dad, who's there? Shut up, he yelled to the men. Fiona, just know that I love you, he said, and ended the call. What did he say, said Marco. He just said that he loved me and hung up. Just then my phone rang and I picked it up without looking. Dad, I asked, panicked. No, sweetie, it's mom. I'm calling you back, she said. Mom, I think there's something wrong with dad. I called him and I told him I broke up with Paul and... Oh no, honey, you guys broke up? That's awful, she said. No, mom, but he wasn't who we thought he was. He'd been lying the whole time. His real name is Jack and he's an undercover cop and he's been using me to get close to our family, I said. I wanted to explain more, but she seemed to understand the situation better than I thought. And you told this to your father? She asked, her voice becoming serious. Yes. He picked up while driving. I heard some people in the car with him, and he just hung up. Oh god, Fiona. Oh no. How could I have let this happen? She said, almost as if she wasn't speaking to me. What happened? She didn't answer. Enough is enough. Just tell me. This Jack guy says dad does very bad things for a living. Is this true? I shouted at her. Yes, it's true. Your dad is what they call an enforcer for a group of businessmen who operate outside of the law. A group of businessmen? Isn't that the mob? I asked, rising to my feet. Yes. Now his associates know you let a cop into the family. And they're probably going to kill him. No, Mom. No. That can't be. He worked in security his whole life. I even saw his business cards. This can't be true. I told her. He was in security. He was their security. When the bosses had a meeting, he and his boys would be there to make sure no one got interfered with. If someone needed to disappear, your father helped arrange it. We didn't want you kids to know about this, but back when we were first married and I had stopped working to take care of Peter as a baby, we were really tight on money. And soon we had debt collectors calling us every night and we were a month away from losing the house when your dad's best friend, Patrick, 
said he had a job for him as a bouncer at a bar. And that second job quickly turned into a full-time thing. Before your father realized what was going on and who was actually paying his wages, it was too late. So you've been lying to your kids your whole life? I asked her. Yes, she began. I know it's not right, but we didn't have much of a choice. You just can't walk away from that type of work. Once you're in, you're in. And now, I could hear her begin to weep. And now, he's going to die for your stupid mistake. My mistake, I was boiling mad. If he was going to die, I was not taking the blame for it. How could I have known to keep my eye out for undercover cops who might want to use me to get close to my mob enforcer father? No one ever told me any of this. I didn't make dad take that job. I didn't even exist yet. This is not my fault. You're right, honey. I'm sorry. I'm just worried. I have no idea what's going on and what's going to happen to him or to us, she said. To us, I asked. What do we have to do with this? They might come after all of us, just in case any of us gave information to the police. It's safest for all of them to shut the source up for good. All of us. Mom, no, you can't be serious, I asked, feeling faint. I am, she let out a small cry. Stay where there are people. Lots of people. Stay on campus as much as possible, where there are security guards and cameras and everything. Is there a friend you can stay with at the dorm, she asked. Yes, there is. I'm pretty sure at least, I told her. Good, go there. Don't let yourself be alone, even for a second, she warned. What about you, Mom? And Peter and Jacob? What are you going to do? I don't know yet, she paused. I have to call them. We'll find some place to stay where we can be safe. I'll call you from a payphone later. I love you, baby girl, she said. I love you too, Mom. And we both ended the call. So it's true, asked Marco, who had watched my phone call with my mother with wide-eyed fascination. Yes, it's true. I held my face and let tears stream down my cheeks once again. Marco rushed over to me and I collapsed in his arms. She told me I have to stay on campus at all times because they're gonna come for me and I shouldn't be alone. You can stay with me. There's only one week left of the semester, and Adam took his finals early and went home. I took a sigh of relief. At least that was one thing that was going right. Marco and I tore through my house, gathering up all the belongings I could need, and then we walked with my suitcases to the dorms. Normally, there would be at least one security guard lazily flipping through a magazine at the entrance to our school's residential building, but when we arrived, the post was vacated. For now, this was a good thing. If someone was staying here more than one night in the building, there would need to be a bunch of paperwork filled out by an RA, the student, their parents, but under these circumstances, I did not want to deal with all of that. Plus, with the rush of finals, most of the RAs in the buildings were so stressed out from studying and writing 20-page papers, they simply didn't care about the rules anymore. Marco scanned me in at the security point at the desk and helped me get my luggage up to his room. After this week was over, I didn't know if I was going to go home or if I'd have a family to return to, but for now, I was grateful that Marco was taking me in. We spent the rest of our Sunday poring over our textbooks and laptops as finals week pushed down on us. I forced myself not to think about what might be happening to my family right now. The only way for me to get through this while I waited to hear from my mother was to focus on something else. Thankfully, I read ahead in, in all of my English classes, so I didn't have much to catch up on after my week out of school. I opened my college email account to see if there was anything I missed. So far, nothing of importance until I found three emails from Professor Jameson. 
My story had been accepted into her literary magazine, and she wanted me to read an excerpt at the end-of-the-year English department showcase. I quickly replied, telling her I would love to be a part of it, and I apologized for not replying sooner. I turned around and beamed at Marco, who was sitting on his bed. Guess what? My story was accepted! And I was just asked to read at the showcase on Tuesday night! That's awesome, he smiled back at me. Monday came and went, and I still hadn't heard from my parents. I scanned the news online to see if any murders had been reported that matched my family members' descriptions, but nothing came up. The only thing I could do to keep myself sane during this time was to focus on school. It may seem like it would be impossible to think of studying or taking finals at a time like this, but if I didn't focus my energy on something, I probably would have had a breakdown. I had one more test to take on Tuesday morning, and then the reading that night. Then I could spend the rest of the week hiding out with Marco until he flew out on Sunday. His sister had bought him a ticket to fly home to Florida to spend the holidays with her. He offered to take me with him. But I couldn't disobey Charlotte. I had to stay close so I could get to the cabin if danger presented itself, and I knew it was extremely likely that it would. I came back to the dorm after my test to find Marco spread out on his bed. I'm exhausted, he said. I've taken four finals, two in physics, one in calculus, and one on American history in the last 24 hours. My brain is fried. Poor thing, I made a pouty face at him. One more test on Thursday and I'm home free. He reached out and pulled me to the bed and kissed me. Even though I loved kissing him, panic about what was going to happen to me after I left took over my body, and I started to shake. Babe, it'll be okay. Your parents are just hiding. You'll be able to go home soon, he said. I know, but I'm afraid someone is waiting for me, that they've already tracked me down and they're just waiting for the kill. I buried my face in his chest. I'm sure they aren't, he said. I just don't want to die so young, especially while I'm still... I stopped myself, too ashamed to admit how inexperienced I was. Still a virgin, I whispered. Really? He asked. What about Paul, or, well, whoever that guy really was? I told Paul I was waiting for true love. And after he proposed, we were about to, for the first time, and that's when I found out he was lying about everything. I'd been waiting so long, and I'm glad I have, but I'm in danger and I might die soon. And it all just feels so pointless. If I'm not going to have this lifelong, perfect marriage like I wanted, why bother waiting? I mean, I don't want to die without having the chance to ever, you know, I trailed off. Marco nuzzled me. I haven't either, you know. Really? I asked him. Yeah, all I've done is make out with a girl or two in high school, but it wasn't serious and they were all clearly embarrassed about it, so yeah, nothing happened with me either, he explained. Do you want to? I asked him in a whisper. Now? His eyes widened. Yeah, I feel safe with you and, and I don't want to leave this life without being with you all the way. You're not going to die, he said and kissed me hard. You don't know that, I said to him. I kissed him again, this time pulling the zipper down from his hoodie and forcing it off his arms. He followed my lead and helped me out of my t-shirt. Soon we were both naked and fused together. There was a bit of pain, but it was far less of a big deal than I thought it was going to be. Afterwards, we held each other under the covers, satisfied in ourselves. Are you alright? He asked. Yeah, I'm fine, I assured him. I'm glad it happened, especially with you. You know, I can cancel my flight home, stay with you, and protect you. We'll find some place to go, he offered. 
No, I have to deal with this on my own. This is what Charlotte wants me to do, I explained. And after the whole thing is over, will you come back to me? Do you still want to be with me? Yes, of course, I told him. Once I survive this, whatever this is, let's be together, for real. I curled my body around his and we fall asleep. By the time I had woken up, the sun had already set in the winter sky. I reached for my phone, my heart pounding as I hoped to see a missed call from my parents. The lock screen was there except for a weather notification about expecting snow in the next 12 hours. I swiped it away. I looked at the time. 5.37? It can't be. I mumbled to myself. What? Marco said with a groan. I only have 20 minutes to get ready for the showcase, I said, dashing to the bathroom and promptly taking a hot but very short shower. The clock was about to hit six when the both of us finally sprinted out of the dorm and across the quad to the humanities building. In my hand, I carried my backpack that was stuffed with clothes, toiletry, and crumbled up notebook. Somewhere inside was a highlighted copy of the story of exactly how I wanted to read it. Being short on time, I wasn't able to search through my entire backpack until I got to the English department. Inside the fancy conference room, old professors in baggy sweaters and sports jackets milled about the cheese and cracker table while clumps of a few English students sat in chairs and chatted amongst themselves. I snatched one of the paper programs off a nearby table and scanned the list of names for mine. Thank God. I was going to be the last student to speak before Professor White closed the evening. As the room began to fill up, Marco and I took our seats with the rest of the attendees. I was about to look through my stuff for my highlighted copy when someone pulled at my arm. It was Professor Jameson, and she had a scowl on her face. Fiona, may I have a word in private? She asked me, forcing me out of my chair. Uh, sure, I said, following the angry teacher to the empty classroom next door. How dare you do this to me? Out of all the students, I thought you would be the last kid to pull this kind of stunt. She pointed her finger in my face. I'm sorry, but what are you talking about? I asked her. Oh, don't play dumb with me. I know. And now my reputation and the reputation of the Chronicle might be ruined if anyone finds out, she said. What are you talking about? I asked again. Daisy Fairchild, she started. She was a real person. I thought you were an imaginative and talented historical fiction writer, but no, you fooled me. You just copied the life of a real person and called it your own. That's plagiarism as far as I'm concerned. She's real? I asked. Of course she's real, the professor went on. I had one of my friends over. He's an English history professor from Columbia. He read your story and told me that Daisy Fairchild was a real person. Not just any person, but a well-known socialite. Her love life and wild antics were scattered all about the 1820s newspapers. She basically was the Zelda Fitzgerald of her time. You think that you can just lift the details of this woman's life and get it published and no one will catch you? Were you that strapped for ideas? Asked the professor. No. I swear to God, I didn't know she was real. It all just came to me in a flash and I wrote it down. I didn't mean to do anything wrong, I said. Oh yeah, right. Like you could see magically into this woman's life without any prior knowledge of her and get every detail right? Yes, I could. I could see her clearly as if I was staring at her through a window outside of her home, I said, trembling as the words came out of my mouth. A window into someone's life, knowing every detail about a person from a different time. That was Charlotte, and I was just like her. Professor Jameson snapped me out of my internal panic. Well, I don't care how you came across this information, but you're going to go up there and pretend like everything is normal. You can read your little excerpt, but after this, I don't want you publishing any more stories about her. I don't want you to mention this story or the York Haven Chronicle to anyone ever again. Do you understand? Yes, I nodded. Good. She grabbed my wrist and dragged me back to the conference room. 
I took my seat next to Marco and pretended like everything was okay. I waited patiently as I could, forcing my mind not to think about what Professor Jameson had said. I sat there and listened to my classmates read their stories for the next 45 minutes, while turning my phone over and over in my hands, hoping for it to vibrate and to hear my mother's voice. But my phone stayed silent, all the way until I heard my name called by Professor Jameson at the podium. Our final student reading for this semester's showcase is an excerpt from Fiona Weatherly's short story, Daisy Fairchild, or The Search for Oneself. This story is set in the Regency era in England, and follows a young woman who aims to live her life her own way in a time where independence for women was a rarity. Said the professor, who smiled brightly at the audience. I pulled out my highlighted copy that I had found in my bag and placed it in front of me. I cleared my throat and looked out at their waiting faces. Recognizing most of them, I felt a ball of acidic panic rise in my throat. I wanted to run, but that would be childish of me. So I made myself stay. I looked down at the paper and made my brain say the words that were on the page. Daisy Fairchild was not what you would expect of a pastor's daughter, I read aloud. She was not meek or homely, as many girls raised in the constant vicinity of little white churches were. Contrarily, she was vivacious. Her constitution shimmered and bubbled with a deep lust for life that every old woman or man who saw her run past them with bare feet and a wild bouquet of flowers envied. It wasn't just that a grown girl of 17 still played as merrily as her younger siblings. It was that she was not ashamed of her nature and was not going to make an effort to change it. I continued as they watched on. Many of the wagging tongues of the women who frequented Pastor Fairchild's Sunday service would say, that girl needs to grow up. She'll be a wife and mother soon. That's no way for a young lady to behave. But these women with their tight bonnets and white lace gloves didn't know that Daisy had indeed grown up on the day her mother died. I continued reading several more lines until I got to the part where a young man from Daisy's town, whom she despised, proposed marriage and stopped. Stepping back from the microphone, I mustered the courage and looked directly at the audience. A fury of clapping hands rose out across the room. I was stunned. I wasn't expecting any of these people to like it, but they did. I couldn't have plagiarized this from someone's real life. I just couldn't have. Looking through the sea of faces, someone caught my eye. Towards the back of the room, there were three people at the refreshments table. Two of them were my fellow classmates, piling cheese and fruit onto their plates. The other was a man with shaggy blonde hair and a beard who I had never seen before. But what sent my heart up into my throat was the fact that he was wearing a black suit with a red tie. The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.